The first reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, <coughs> excuse me, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The second reading is Psalm 106. Just double checking, yes. And it's on page 582, Psalm 106. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. Remember me, Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. <clears throat> we have sinned even as our ancestors did, we have done wrong and act wickedly. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of foe. From the hand of the enemy, he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries and none of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his God what he had done and did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert, they gave in to their craving. In the wilderness, they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. In the camp, they grew envious of Moses and of Aaron, who was consecrated to the Lord. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It buried the company of Abiram. Fire blazed among their followers. A flame consumed the wicked. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them, but not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promise. They grumbled in their tents. They did not obey the Lord. So he swore to them with uplifted hand that he would make them fall in the wilderness, make their descendants fall among the nations and scatter them throughout the lands. They yoked themselves to the Baal of poor and ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They aroused the Lord's anger by their wicked deeds and a plague broke out among them. But Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was checked. This was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. 
By the waters of Meribah they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them. For they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. But they defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds they prostituted themselves. Therefore the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. He gave them into the hands of the nations and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion and they wasted away in their sin. Yet he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and out of his great love he relented. He caused all those who held them captive to show them mercy. Save us, Lord God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. David's going to come and share God's word with us and reflect on those readings and on Israel. So let's just pray for him and for us. Lord, we ask that you will work through David and work in us, that your word might go out and find a place in our hearts so that you will be changing and shaping us according to your purposes. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Good morning. Good morning. So, I'm just going to rearrange stuff. Okay, so we've just heard um, a kind of summary. This is too high. <laughs> Gasps. There's quite a lot of custard still on that pie. <laughs> We just had a uh, kind of summary of um, the story of the nation of Israel. And the story of Israel is the story of the Old Testament. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. There are, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. About 900 of them are in the Old Testament. So, you know, I'm going to try and keep it brief. Um, <laughs> I used to work in Borders Bookshop in Cambridge before they went defunct. And I had a customer one day who came in and they were buying a New Testament. And I was making conversation, as you do, about people's purchases. And I said, and he said, why do you need the tree if you've already got the fruit? This must have been more than a decade ago, and I still remember that because I think it's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. But I think it also speaks to the way a lot of us see the Old Testament. It seems like the kind of failed plan A, which is replaced by the plan B of Jesus. It seems difficult and contradictory and 
dense. It seems like the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. And so I think a lot of us are nervous about straying into the Old Testament. And I kind of want to speak today, as much as anything, try and give a kind of sales pitch for the Old Testament in case uh, that's where you are um, in your relationship to the first two-thirds of our Bible. So why do we read the Old Testament? The first reason is that the New Testament tells us to. That seems as good a reason as any. For the early Christians, for Jesus and Peter and Paul, the Old Testament was all they had. The canon of the Old Testament was... um, more or less settled by the time of Jesus. Certainly uh, the Torah, uh, the law, the first five books, was um, very ancient. Then um, in Jewish thought, the Old Testament is broken into three blocks. It's slightly differently arranged to our Bible. You have the Torah, uh, the Nevi'im is the next bit, which is the prophets. Nevi'im means prophets. And again, those books were all settled. They were all finished, and they were all kind of accepted as scripture by the time of Jesus. The last set of books is called the Ketuvim, which means writings. And that was the last canon to be closed, the last part of the canon to be closed. And more or less it was set by the time of Jesus. There are a couple of controversial books, which kind of, like Song of Solomon's, no one was, a bit sh- no one was sure about until maybe a a hundred years later, but uh, more or less, even the writings were there. Certainly they were all written, they're all widely known, they're all widely cited, and definitely the law and the prophets were solidly the word of God. And so when in uh, 2 Timothy, Paul says all scripture is uh, God-breathed and is useful for this, that, and the other, you know the scripture I'm referring to? I I can read it if you need it, but I think you know what I'm talking about. When he says all scripture, what he's talking about is the Old Testament, because he didn't know he was writing the New Testament at the time. Uh, Similarly, uh, Jesus, when he wants to explain himself and the significance of his own life on the road to Emmaus, he meets two disciples who don't understand the importance of his death. And it says, Luke tells us the way he explained himself was not to say, Oh, the prophet Jesus who you knew said this, that, and the other. He says, let's look at the law and the prophets. And he starts with Moses um, and works all the way through the law and the prophets, the uh, Torah and Nevi'im, explaining who he is and why what happened had to happen. So for Jesus, the Old Testament is the explanation for him. And he also refers to himself earlier in uh, Matthew 5, He refers to himself as the fulfilment of the law and the prophets. So if we're to know what Jesus fulfills, if we're to know the meaning of Jesus' life, it's really important that we grapple with the Old Testament. So that's my first pitch, really, is that you can't say, why do we need the tree when we have the fruit? Because the fruit is telling you to look at the tree. And that, to me, is a good indication that the tree maybe still matters. The second reason that we should look at the Old Testament is, for me, there, it's a false distinction anyway. We're talking about the big story of the Bible in this series in five stages, creation, fall, 
Israel, which is my bit, and then we're going to go on to talk about Jesus and the church. And there is a, it's a false distinction to see the New Testament as somehow separate from that. The Old Testament and the New Testament are telling this one big story. And there's continuity. There's this really ancient idea that the God of the New Testament is a God of love and the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment. But for me, when I read the Old Testament, I see continuity with the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a God of power. He's a God who... One of the most remarkable scriptures I read last year, I'm going elsewhere in the Psalms, Psalm 18, from verse 6, I might jump around a bit. In my distress, uh, I called to the Lord, I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He saw on the wings of the wind. And then in verse 16, he reached down from on high and took hold of me and drew me out of deep waters. Have you ever heard a more remarkable statement of God's power than the image of him riding into battle on the back of angels? That's a crazy image. But the God of the Old Testament is a God of power. He creates the world out of primordial chaos, as we heard about a couple of weeks ago, and creates order. But he's not just the God of power, he's the God of power who acts powerfully within history. And that's the point of our first reading today about Abraham. Abram at this point in the story. As we heard in the last two weeks, creation was made perfect. And the world was made good and then it was corrupted. And really the whole first 11 chapters of the Bible are all creation stories, really. They all explain something about how the world came to be how it is, for good or for bad. They explain where nations come from, where national rivalries come from, where language comes from, as well as the kind of physical matter of land and sky and sea. And they also explain the folly of man within that creation. Not just Adam and Eve, but also Cain and Abel, and the foolishness of Noah and his sons in the wake of the flood. And so this is the context for the whole rest of the Bible, really. And then the turning point happens here at the end of verse 11, beginning of verse 12, where God goes to a man in southern Iraq and says, if you follow me, All nations will be blessed through you. And the rest of the Bible is really the outworking of what starts there. Because Abraham's family becomes a nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel, uh, someone is born into that nation thousands of years later, whose name is Jesus. And so not only is a God... I've got a power, but God steps into history to act powerfully to save the creation which was spoiled. 
So, and that runs through the whole of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. The second thing I see in the God of the Old Testament that I think is really crucial to understanding the whole Bible is that God is a God of justice. And that's where some people get unstuck, I think, because we see justice as just, God's justice as just handing down rules and then punishing those who transgress those rules. And that is part of it, and we can't get away from the fact that there is consequence to breaking what God says is the best way to live. Although perhaps a fairer way of looking at it would be to not see it as rules and cross punishment hitting with a stick. It's much more about a parent who gives guidelines and boundaries and shows his children that there are consequences for overstepping those boundaries. I assume we are all on board with that as an idea. But God isn't only a God of uh, legal justice in the sense of being the, the rule giver and the judge who enforces those rules. He's also a God of social justice. You know, we see Jesus and his concern for the poor and the downtrodden and the sick. But that goes all the way back, all the way through the Old Testament. God is the God of Ruth which is a book about food banks and about social care and about the welfare state. We see God's social justice in, you know, there's a passage in Hosea where it's a passage of judgment. It's a passage of God telling Israel what they've done wrong. And in the middle of it, he says, don't you see that I desire mercy more than worship? We have a God who's so concerned about the welfare of the poor and the downtrodden, that he would rather the powerful were merciful than he got worship. God is a God of incredible justice, but that justice is not just about rules. It's about making sure that everyone is cared for and everyone has a fair shot and that everyone is fed and everyone has the chance to come to him. And I think in that we glimpse the third quality that I think really runs through the whole Bible and it shouldn't come as a surprise to you. But that third quality is that the God of the Old Testament is of course a God of love. And we saw in our psalm today 106. We see this history of Israel, of this relationship between a God and his people, and how the people are continually walking away from that relationship, and how God is continually welcoming them back. It's, it says it in the beginning give thanks to the Lord for his good, his love endures forever. Then at the end, it says, uh, where is it? From verse 40-ish. Therefore the Lord was angry with his people and had bored his inheritance because of all they'd done. He gave them into the hands of nations and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. 
Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion, and they wasted away in their sin, and our God of justice maybe would leave it there. But, and for their sake he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love he relented and caused all who held them captive to show them mercy. Earlier on, it calls out a, an incident from probably Exodus, maybe Numbers, um, in verse 20. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull who eats grass. They forgot God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying him? And what we see there is possibly the most remarkable thing is that his love tempers his power and his justice. And when there's an opportunity to be more loving, God can be convinced to be more loving. We see it again in, uh, when Abraham bargains with God to not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if he can find only one righteous man. And there's this back and forth where God can be reasoned with to show more love. But incidentally, it doesn't work the other way because Jonah tries it. At the end of Jonah... He, the prophet is furious that God has shown love and not judgment and says, why didn't you show more judgment? They don't deserve the love you've shown them. And God says, I don't care. I would rather be more loving. So God's power and his justice can be tempered by love and is tempered by love, always tempered by love. But his love is never overridden by his desire for justice and his power. So for me, those three things, his power, particularly his power as enacted through history, his justice and his love, if you can't see those things in the New Testament, I suggest you read it again. Um, That's the continuity through the whole Bible. You know, there is no old, new divide, and so you can't even separate the fruit from the tree. And maybe you find that convincing, and maybe that's where I should stop. Some of you are looking at your watches thinking, yes, that's where you should stop. (laughs) But as I was reading around the subject in preparation, I pulled out this old book, Beginning Old Testament Study. And there's a chapter on Old Testament theology. And what it does is it keeps saying, such and such a scholar says the kind of the founding theological principle of the Old Testament is this. And it explains what it is and how this writer thinks it works. And then the guy who's writing the chapter says, but of course, all of that is bobbins. Um, but on the other hand, some other theologian says this. This is the, the, the unifying thing about the Old Testament. And he explains what it is. And then he says, but of course, that's also bobbins. And he does that about nine times. It's quite a frustrating chapter to read, as we said. And he finishes by saying this. Often we find that the strains of theological thought are being described as central to the Old Testament because they chime in best with a particular scholar's own ideas of theological truth. When this happens, the discipline of Old Testament theology ceases to serve readers of the Bible and becomes their master, forcing them to read the text from a standpoint artificially imposed upon it. 
The only remedy is for students to insist on reading the text for themselves, not accepting any generalisations about its central themes or insights unless they can find evidence for them in their own reading. So what that's saying is, I've just told you why you should read the Old Testament and what I see as a unifying principle of the Old Testament, but what this writer is saying is, what if that is Bobbins? And he says the only solution to that is that you read the Old Testament for yourselves. And so I'd like to finish with a, an, an emotive response, I suppose, a personal response, rather than trying to logic you into reading those 920-odd chapters of the Bible. I want to finish by saying this. The reason I love the Old Testament, which can be difficult and can be contradictory and complicated and, frankly, a bit dense in places, the reason I love the Old Testament is because so can I. I can be difficult and complex and my life is contradictory and problematic and a bit dense in places and I got almost a chuckle over there I thought that was quite a good joke but never mind um, <laughs> the story of Israel is about a nation which makes a commitment to a relationship with a God they can't possibly understand and then the books of the Old Testament are written over a thousand-year period or so. You don't get this with the New Testament. The New Testament is written in about 70 years by people who all knew each other. The Old Testament is written by people in a wide variety of contexts over thousands of years of history by people who had very, very different contexts and viewpoints. That's why it's so difficult, but it's this meditation across all that time on this relationship with an unknowable God. And I, too very young, entered into a relationship with a God that I couldn't possibly understand. And what I find in the Old Testament is something for every mood. There are times where things are going my way, and I think, yes, if you follow God... You enjoy the blessings of God, and I have proverbs for me when I feel like that. But then there are other times where I think, no, bad things happen to good people, and there's nothing anyone can do about it, and nothing means anything, and there's Ecclesiastes for that. There are times where I think, this is the day that the Lord has made, as we said at the beginning. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And there are other days where I go elsewhere in the Psalms, and I think, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And my, the story of my relationship with God is that I have been called into a relationship with a powerful, just, loving God, and I continually walk away, and he continually calls me back and welcomes me back. And what the Old Testament gives us is a library of ways of responding to that relationship out of every possible context we could find ourselves in. And so the reason we don't discard the tree when we have the fruit is because both the tree and the fruit are a gift. And so my suggestion this morning is that we enjoy the gifts that God has given us, all of the gifts that God has given us in his word. Amen.